Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody, and happy 13th anniversary. We appreciate everybody that's been joining us. A lot of y'all have been with us from that first January in 2010 that we started off. And for those that are going to help us celebrate live, I'd like to go ahead and extend an invitation, as always. If you uh, scroll down to the bottom of the show page, that's where you will find the chat room. We'll be monitoring that during the course of the show. And we're just going to have a kind of a free-for-all anniversary chat fest. So if there's uh, something that you all wanted to ask us uh, that we haven't covered in one of our recent shows, put it in the chat room. We will uh, more than more than happy to bring it into the conversation. We also, uh, heck, we'll open the, the studio line if anybody wants to call in. We've had a couple people call in the last few months, which has been great. It's area code 347-308-8397. It's also there on the show page, so if you're with us live, you can just go back there and uh, catch it up. So, uh, again, since January 2010, it's um, it has been a great opportunity to talk with a lot of folks um, about our Navy, about national security issues, and other topics that swirl around it. And as we mentioned a few months ago, when, when he passed away, uh, much earlier than usual, we started off 13 years ago. I wanted to mention one of our original co-hosts, uh, Raymond Pritchard. Uh, he, he passed away uh, a few months ago, and uh, we, we spent some time talking about him earlier. If you missed that show, you can, you can go back to uh, earlier this fall. Uh, last fall, and uh, had a few things in, in background that we talked about Raymond as well. And I also want to give a shout-out to the man that in late 2009 uh, asked the question that gets a lot of things started, for better or worse. Have you all ever thought, dot, 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 a friend, a frequent guest, and a man in his own right in the national security arena, Claude Barabay, he talked to Raymond and Mark and myself and thought that uh, it might be interesting now that technology allowed for you to upload audios and these thing called podcasting was going on. Would that be something you all be interested in doing? And lo and behold, 13 years ago, we did. And in the pre-show, my co-host and I were just talking about it sure hasn't seemed too long. 13 years. I've I don't know, Eagle One. I think um, next year, Midrath is going to go in front of the 05 board. Uh, maybe they'll select early. I'm not sure. 
Well, it would be nice if they did. We could, I don't know what we'd call it then, uh, Admiral Rats, uh, Commander Rats. Who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's it's been, it, it does not seem that long to me. I'm, I don't, uh, we have just had so many great guests and so many great topics over the years. And, and, uh, and our, you know, the people who to put up with the bad audio that we occasionally have uh, and all that, to, uh, really appreciate the, uh, the, uh, People who listen to us and and give us feedback and join in the chat room and it's been it's been great. But I also think we ought to mention uh, the, the I mean, just remarkable lineup of people we've had on the show. You, you talk about Brian McGrath, Jerry Hendricks, uh, Mark Vandroff, uh, Mackenzie Eglin, uh, Megan Eckstein, Sam Legrone, uh, John Conrad, uh, um, <laughs> Matt Hipple. Jack McCain, Sam Tangredi, Robert <laughs> Farley, Christian, Christian Broche. Uh, I mean, I got this. Dimitri Gorenberg, Toshi Yashahara, James Holmes, uh, Barney Rubel, Brett Sadler, uh, Dean Chang. Uh, man, I, I've got this. I've got this. I, I hate to say names because I'm afraid I'll miss anybody. Ross Kennedy, uh, Tim Spawn, uh, Blake Hersinger. Um, uh, Aliso Patalano, I think I got that right. Uh, oh yeah, and Sal Mercagliano. As long as I'm doing names that uh, <laughs> we all have trouble uh, pronouncing. Uh, Pete, Pete Small, uh, Tom Wright, uh, who, uh, 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 Gray Connolly, Chris Raleigh, Alex uh, uh, Gray, I think. Jordan, I can't read my hand right. Jordan Bradford, uh, Hallie. Uh, Jire, I think, Ryan uh, Hilger, I mean, uh, and Claude, and uh, I'm sure uh, TJ, uh, a bunch of other people that I'm sure I will uh, remember later on. But going back over the list, it's been terrific, the people we've had on, the shows we've had. Uh, I went back and counted. We've, you know, we were prescient in a lot of ways. We talked about China early on. I think in, in 2010, we first had our first mention of, of China. We've had 23 shows specifically related to China about Russia yeah, first in uh, June of 2011, I think, and that was, and we've done 13 shows, Russia-specific, even before they invaded um, Crimea and and other parts of Ukraine. Um, you know, we just, we've, we've, we just had a lot of fun with the show, and Afghanistan has been a big topic for us. Uh, I think we've had several shows on that and, and some of the problems and issues that arose out of the way we approached it. Uh, obviously, uh, Tom Wright was about Fat Leonard. Uh, we do a lot of talk about the size of the Navy, the types of ships we should have in the Navy, the Maritime Department. I think that's a Herzinger or Hipple uh, suggestion. Uh, and, you know, not many other shows have ever that I know of have been talking about logistics the way we've been talking about logistics and how vital it is to, to national security. So with that, I give us a big pat on the back for having great guests and giving them the, the freedom to talk uh, about their ideas and what their thoughts are. And I think that's also one of the neat things, you know, we do we do apologize for our audio problems in the past, but you get what you pay for. And we don't have any sponsors or anything, so that gives us an opportunity to do what I know a lot of our our guests really like is we will do the the unsexy but important. I know uh you know you mentioned Sal Mercagliano. You you can't mention him without mentioning John Conrad. I think they get their feelings hurt if one is mentioned and the other one doesn't. But uh, we've invested a lot of time in the 
the merchant marine and the logistics, the stuff that'll, that you know may not be as exciting as how many bombs you can carry, how fast you can go. But as everybody knows, especially if you're looking to the Pacific, that is so critically important. And um, people are starting to talk about that now. So that's that's really nice to see. And what's also funny along the way, especially um, some of these names early on, when we didn't you know, have as, as large of a readership, uh, readership, listenership as we have right now. But uh, it's kind of a life lesson that, uh, as any salesman will tell you, that if you don't make the ask, you're definitely not going to get it. But over the course of the years, we had Bob Work come on. We had John Kirby come on. Uh, Representative Jim Banks has been with us. We even got Don Rumsfeld on, I think, in the first three years or so, or four years, uh, when, his, when his health was still real strong. It was uh, it was a really nice opportunity, and, it, and it's something uh, that uh, a few folks that we brought on years ago that we, we've watched as their careers and their influence has grown. And two things that's been interesting is one is the continuity of a lot of the people in the discussion space. Uh, and since a la- earlier in the week, I look back at, at Robert Kaplan's 2007 article, America's Elegant Decline, and just, you know, how has it aged up over 15 years? That was three years before Midrats started. But um, it has a lot of discussions with uh, two of the people he quoted in there were Midrats guests. Uh, Bob Work and Claude Barabay also gets quoted in Kaplan's article, and he brings up an issue that um, Representative Gallagher and got into Congress that Brian McGrath has been advocating for a long time, uh, which was changing the Title 10, requir- Title 10 requirement for the Navy, which uh, for the executive summary is it actually forces the Navy to look at the peacetime presence mission and to to do it right, so to speak. Um, the attorneys can get a summary of it. Words mean things. Uh, and so a lot of these issues that we've talked about through the years, here we are 13 years later, not that no progress is being made, but I think when you look at the topics that we've talked about, it underlines kind of a theme that you and I have talked about through the years is there is a continuity to the requirements and the challenges in the maritime arena. They don't change with the latest buzzword of the day or the popular topic that everybody needs to insert in their fit rep or in their article. Um, you can can call it a variety of things, but at its core, the mission and the requirements are the same. And I, I look back, and we've done it before on, on previous anniversary shows, but we're going to do it again because I think it's fun. Um, when you looked at January of 2010, our, our first 10 shows that uh, Raymond, yourself, and, and I invested our time in, the first show was just the three of us chatting away which was kind of funny. Um, I was still learning the switchboard requirements. (laughs) And nobody knows this because we stripped it out. But I didn't realize that when the show ended, the recording continued. So we had an after-show conversation for about 10 minutes that went up as the podcast until Raymond sent me a rather curt email telling me I needed to fix it. Uh, Because we, uh, 
I don't say we we talked out of school per se, but it was interesting for those that had a chance to read it, the couple of three that got it. Um, then episode two, we had Claude on to talk about piracy. And, you know, that's maybe something we could talk about later is how piracy has changed or not changed. But that was a big issue in 2010 in both the uh, Straits of Malacca and also off of the Horn of Africa. We had Brian McGrath on episode three, talked about the multipolar world and time travel back to 2010. We still had uh, big wars going on, well, not compared to what's going on in uh, Ukraine, but we still had significant numbers of high five figures, low four figures of forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. We had uh, Lucien Gaultier, who's still on active duty, uh, doing the Lord's work in a chief's mess on the West Coast. Um, we'll have to – I exchange notes with, with Lucien uh, every couple of months or so uh, with his growing family. Great guy. But we had him and uh, Charles – Malone, Commander One Issue, um, uh, U.S. Navy 05, who had just gotten through with a bonus command tour, I think it was, or special mission command tour. Basically, he was running one of the detention facilities in Iraq. So we talked about the suede boat Navy a bit. We had Mackenzie Eaglin on to talk about the QDR. Uh, and Mackenzie, she's over at AEI now. We've had her on a few times. She's also since then. Um, she's recommended a few guests to us. She's still out and a very influential person with a great head. I actually had a chance to uh, uh, to meet her uh, last year in person, and uh, she is sharp and sharp, sharp. She's she's not very tall, but she's got an incredible head on her shoulders. Um, we also had a uh, discussion about the information space and the ecosystem with Phil Ewing and Bill Miller, who at that time was the publisher of USNI. Um, and it, it seems like it wasn't that long ago, but we had Elaine Donnelly and Marcus on to talk about Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because that hadn't, uh, decision hadn't been made at that point. We had uh, filmmakers Daniel uh, Sekaluk and Kevin Doherty on, to, again, to talk about piracy and the work they had done on it. We had a free-for-all for episode nine. In the 10th, we had a Brian McGrath back on with Barney Rubble to talk about sea control. And we've had um, Barney and Brian have both been very kind through the years. I think we average having them on every, um, every couple, three years. And we have a lot of regular guests like that. In our first year, um, we had, I think it was our first year, we had, Dmitry Gorenberg, Dr. One Issue, on to talk about Russia. And what was interesting is the last time we had him on about a year ago, maybe less, uh, or the one time before that we talked about when we first had him on board at CNA, he was it, as we saw throughout the national security um, infrastructure. The Russia hands were all put out to pasture, and he was the Russia guy at CNA. Uh, nobody else was there. Nobody was interested in Russia. And lo and behold, now I think he's uh, he's the senior guy with a dozen other folks with him because uh, as everybody has known from 2022, uh, Russia has, as most things do, it's, it's regressed towards the mean and is being in Russia again. And I just thought that was, that was interesting looking back at our first 10 shows uh, piracy isn't a, a top 10 item anymore, though it's 
uh, those task forces are still operating off the Horn of Africa, and you still occasionally will see in the news about um, a ship off of Singapore that's being taken. Um, but uh, there's a lot of continuity in this particular area of interest, and the, I think the, the the record from uh, 2010 to 2023 kind of plays that out. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, we need to we probably need to discuss some more current events than just what we've done in the past. But yeah, piracy <laughs> came and went. I mean, piracy goes on. It's not you know it's mostly sea robbery, people boarding ships in the Singapore Straits, stealing small stuff. That's gone on since time immemorial, uh, pretty much. And you know the, the Somali pirates. There, I think they're still running armed uh, teams that come on board ships, sail through that area, get off, and, you know, there, there are arsenal ships out there where they keep their weapons. You know, that pretty much ended that that issue. That we, the uh, NATO and uh, the international community still do operate. The Chinese have gotten some great uh, blue water experience by going through, uh, doing that exercise for quite a while. But, uh, of course, they have, have a lot to gain by making sure ships don't get taken, uh, since that's one of their... Uh, important sea lines of communication. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we've, uh, if, you know, people are looking for variety in shows. If you go back and look, I mean, if you want to hear what uh, military attaches do, we've done that. Uh, I mean, it, it, we could go on and on about the things we've covered. Uh, we know in the future we're going to have uh, some of our guests come back again. I think uh, Tashi uh, uh, wants to come on and do, he's got a new book out and and uh, a couple of articles that uh, are important about about China, um, and it's from a historical perspective, what China's learned from their own history and from from the history of uh, World War II uh, island campaigns. So I think that'll be those will be a good topic. Uh, I think uh, I'm not sure we're going to. I know we're going to talk to a bunch of other folks that we've we've already got kind of. Uh, lined up, but it's you know it's uh, now's the time when we start making our plans. So if anybody wants to suggest some, some people we need to get to, on here and talk to, that now's the time to to let us know. At the uh, the end of the month, we're going to have Brian McGrath on to talk about what we mentioned earlier that um, the implications of the change of Title Ten and a few other things. Brian's always got a, a few irons in the fire, and then Toshi is joining us for the last Sunday of the month. Uh, to, to discuss his his new book, they're they're both great guests, and you know, as we're looking to 2023, you know, you mentioned you know what's going forward. Obviously, um, when you go back to January and early February of last year, we we briefly mentioned Russia's extended exercise games, and I think our take was that if they're far eastern. Um, Forces didn't leave after the exercise supposed to be done in Belarus, then things might, Belarus, or whatever they call it nowadays, um, white Russia will upset everybody, um, that uh, then things might get interesting. And they did get interesting. So that was Russia's play in 2022. So looking to 2023, one of the things I'm thinking about is the BRICS, Brazil. Russia, India, China, South Africa. Uh, one thing about the BRICS, besides the fact that it's like uh, back when back when we were in our prime, the non-aligned movement is the modern iteration of that. The nations that really don't want to be 
um, pro-U.S., so to speak, though India has kind of changed. But Brazil, those are the nations to look at because they all share a fair bit of instability and friction uh, besides uh, what they're trying to do economically, uh, contra the uh, U.S. and Western Europe stating athwart most of the world's international order. Brazil, for those that have been watching it today, they're having stuff in their capital, which uh, unrelated, but God, that's horrible postmodern architecture in Brasilia. Uh, they are having a outbreak of political action in Brasilia today that makes what happened on January 6, 2021 in D.C. look like a garden party. Um, watched a little bit of video of that this morning. Uh, Russia, she's occupied with what she's been doing for the last 11 months. Um, India, interesting, that whole border area between India and China flared up again. I, I guess it's becoming an annual rhythm. But the, the thing that's really interesting isn't the little tactical stuff with India that I'm going to be looking at in 2023 is uh, – this year or next, the demographers will tell us, India is going to be the nation with the world's largest population. It will surpass China, whose population will be going through its second or third, depending upon which demographer you look at, uh, population decline, and that's going to accelerate. Um, so they think that sometime towards the late 20s, that India's population will peak and also start a similar decline. But that's an interesting dynamic that the world's largest democracy will also be the world's largest nation once they pass China officially. And the final demographer will give them that heads up probably in a year or two anyway. So it'll become kind of a normal thing. Uh, how they continue to get closer to us, that's another thing I'm watching because they historically have been very close to Russia economically and military source, but that's got to change, especially when they look at how China and Russia are coming close together and how the U.S. and Australia, uh, Vietnam, and Japan all want to work closer with India. So that's, I'm gonna keep it, that's one of the things in 2023 I'm going to look at for India. Um, China speaks for itself. I think the big story, at least for the next few months, to see whether it plays out, is uh, President Xi has decided that the COVID zero policy isn't going to happen, so they are stopping all of their quarantine and lockdown. And a couple of interesting people I've listened to um, have stated that they are going to have a big catch-up in infections because the rest of the world, you know, at least in Florida, we got back to normal the summer of 2020, so we've have our population has had this virus going back and forth on a regular basis. China hasn't had that, so all of a sudden it's all going to hit them like a wave. Uh, it would be interesting to see whether that plays out culturally more than anything else. But that will also bring their economy back because they won't be closing their factories as much. Uh, so that's that economic and cultural turmoil in China that nobody from our seats really understands real well. But looking at it from the outside, there are a couple things worth looking at. And the, what I find the least interesting, which means it's probably the place that will have a problem, 
in the BRICS is South Africa. Um, uh, you could we could we could do probably ten shows on South Africa if we wanted to. We talked a little bit about it when we had um, Jack McCain on with his book about the Brush War, but um, great resources, great potential. But uh, I think some of the more interesting things that I've read about things to watch in South Africa is the African National Congress continues to splitter, splinter, get weak, and um, get corrupt. So when that power dynamic changes, it'll be interesting to see how that that nation um, gets its footing. But that's that's on 2023. What I'm going to do for the lack of anything else that's tapping me on the shoulder, uh, I'm going to look at the non-Russia BRICS to see what might uh, <laughs> bring us interesting things on the international stage. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, those are good thoughts. I, I'm, I'm still focusing on, to a certain extent, on the, on the U.S.-Australia uh, relationship. I know that suddenly that that AUKUS is controversial, and I'm not quite sure why that 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 is not uh, being pushed as, as uh, hard as it should be, in my view. Um, we've got. Uh, I'm concerned a lot about. About the influence, I'm beginning to see a a uh, diminishing of the power of the green movement. People are not; they don't want to freeze in the dark because somebody has a brilliant idea that sunshine and and wind will provide all our power. So you know, these as as nuclear power plants begin to to gear up again uh, to keep people alive, and we're beginning to see. Uh, hopefully, this fusion reactor thing that, that somebody has played with will, will come to to be a commercially viable option down the road somewhere. But in the meantime, there are a lot of small uh, reactors that are available that uh, are, have already been kind of commercially, I mean, you know, have been approved. They just need to be put in place, uh, and in places like like uh, New England, where they've, they've their natural gas supply has been cut off by New York State, uh, and so now they're having to import LNG from. From Europe, which makes little or no sense to me, but it's the way it works. So, uh, you know, the, the, I see those plants being that issue coming back to the fore, and it's important for national security because once again, energy independence is, is really important to us. And to the extent that we have it, it's helped stay out of um, uh, South uh, West Asia right now. We can we can still. Um, we don't have to be there. <laughs> we need to we need to cut CENTCOM back a little bit if we're gonna. Uh, we, we need a presence, but we don't need to have a. Uh, we need to keep a bunch of, of high-powered presence there. Yeah, and I think the American people have had enough of. Uh, really, since 1980, being so deeply involved in that area, you know, after over over four decades. Um, it's our economies aren't that reliant on it. And I liked your comment about um, the day of reckoning for the green movement. It, it was going to happen eventually. It's just like, what is the catalyst that's going to take to break the fever? And what will be the, the sunk cost on uh, pursuing this? It's almost a religion with some people. So if I'm upsetting anybody, that's on you. It's not on me. Uh, this is just how you generate megawatts. And you're right that that the German people have got to hold their government accountable because first they uh, put their neck in the hands of the Russians, 
and they're paying for it now. They're burning dirty coal just to keep their lights on, and for some reason, um, very capable nuclear reactors, uh, they're getting rid of them while the French are building more. And the French have a very green economy because they know that's the best way to generate megawatts. Uh, if not, you're going to be burning natural gas. There was a really interesting uh, couple of things on this topic about Germany. Is uh, And Peter Zahn Zane mentioned something about this uh, a while ago as well, that California and Germany have very similar green incentives. And the Germans get all upset that they don't have the same results that California has been able to get as a percentage of their uh, electrical generating from, quote, renewables, unquote. Uh, and I remember this from when I, I, I lived there um, before I, you know, a couple of years before I started Midrash, is um, Germany's not California. They don't have deserts in Germany. They're not, you know, at 30 to 35 north latitude. Germany's 45, 50 latitude north, and it's cloudy all the time, and it's dreary, you're not going to be able to generate solar there like you can in other places. They don't have wind like we do. And there's plenty of controversy about you know wind power, how that works. But if you want to be green, you got to have access to wind. you got to have access to solar. Germany was never going to do that because that's not where she is on the planet. She, unless she moves to Mali, they're not going to have the ability to do that. So Germany is going to have a huge reckoning, and I still don't think politically that has played out. They're going to have to generate megawatts. And if they were serious about, quote, green, unquote, they, they can't burn lignite coal for the next 15, 20 years. They've got to find another way to generate megawatts. They're not going to get it by solar. They're not going to get it by wind. They can get it from natural gas from the Middle East and North America and a little bit um, – out of the North Sea, perhaps, from their neighbors, but they're going to have to go nuclear. And if if you look at it from an objective point of view, if there is a nation that would do a good job with nuclear power, it would be the nation that has some of the best engineers and technologists in the world, and that's Germany. Uh, if they went nuclear, they would do it as well, if not better, than the French, who also have done very good stuff with modern technology, Modern nuclear reactors is not Three Mile Island. It's not Chernobyl. It's like the difference between a, a Model T and a, your your brand new Tesla. Uh, technology is very different, much safe. And uh, so that I think the, the, <laughs> you know, choose an electric car as an example is probably not. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm waiting. Run over people. Yeah, I, 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 I'm I waiting do. for the. I'm waiting for the uh, for the shoe to drop when people who bought these uh, electric cars, with, which were subsidized, heavily subsidized by the federal government, uh, in a lot of ways, have to face the the, the possibility of, of new batteries or whatever is going to happen because uh, these things are not just like the the wind uh, towers and the and the uh, solar panels. These things are not environmentally friendly. And I mean, we've had—I you know, think we had somebody on the show talking about this. It's just—it's just, it's just uh, 
you know, this down the road, there's going to be a a big bill to pay for what happens when you try and recycle things that can't be recycled. California is, uh, as I understand, has gotten away with it by reclassifying what every other state has called uh, hazardous waste as not being hazardous because it's related to solar solar power. You know that. Yeah. I don't think it's going to float for very long, and and, there's, and we just some you know this is this is going to happen. Uh, people who are and, and you can see even in Texas where they've they've tried to convert to to wind and they certainly have wind and and all that. And but you know and, and when the conditions are wrong, when you're driving your electric vehicle and it's uh, 20 degrees below zero, you're not going to go very far, and it's. Uh, you know, pe- people have to take a hard look at the choices they're making and, and whether the environmental uh, goodness they think they're pursuing is actually being met at all by what they're doing. And I've been I've been a radical environmentalist by my definition since I was a little kid. But instead of you know, these little neo-pagan ideas spouted by Swedish teenagers, my thing has always been pollution, clean water clean air, um, efficient landfills were required, recycling, all that stuff. That's that's always been my bag because that's actionable. You can measure that. There are metrics involved in there. It's a fact-based evolution that you can see real things in. Um, and uh, one thing I like to point at people about wind power, there's no way to recycle those blades. Those huge windmill blades have a limited life, and they bury them in landfills. Uh, so be careful how many windmills you want to put up in addition to uh, killing all the raptors we saved from getting rid of DDT. Uh, when it's time to replace those blades, they're just being put in the ground. They don't biodegrade. Uh, that's a huge part of the, the windmill industry that's not discussed very well. Is there's I, I guess somebody's come up with an idea. Maybe you could chip it and melt it, but then that creates toxic stuff. It's a big, big mess. Uh, the I wanted to go back to something else that, that you mentioned that, that also is a 2023 item. You mentioned, you know, at the tail end of the Trump administration, the uh, UK-US-Australia pact for the nuclear submarines. And... Um, in separate correspondence, I know you and I bounced this topic back and forth, and since we've done that, I've been thinking about it a little bit more that it's really infuriating for those that have been tracking it that on the U.S. side of the house, because of our exquisitely designed submarine infrastructure here, that we can't just flip a switch and build more submarines. and I think a mistake's being made where we rightfully say that we need more nuclear submarines and we can only build them so fast and we can only we can't maintain the ones we have because of decisions that were made years ago, which is, you know, a topic for a show or two in and to itself. But my mind is that we have engineers and we have program managers that need to be told to sit down and be quiet. There's a larger strategic issue in at, at hand here. I think there is a net strategic gain to the United States by if we if the right answer because of, I believe the UK construction isn't an option because their infrastructure to build nuclear submarines is even tighter than ours. Uh, 
So if the answer is giving a Virginia-class submarine every other one to the Australians, which we could also start bringing them on and you know having them cross-deck with us to train them, as opposed to coming into the U.S. fleet, they go into the Australian fleet. I think that act would have huge positive strategic act assets, not only to our relationship, but our relationship with friends in the far Pacific and the Australians than it would if we just had one more, two more, three more LA-class submarines in the U.S. fleet. And if things do go to crap in the Western Pacific, and people say, well, we need those submarines for a contingency in the Western Pacific. History and logic shows that if we wind up at war in the Western Pacific, those Australian submarines will be fighting right next to us as if they were wearing an American flag. Whereas if we let the Australia-UK-US agreement flounder or get pushed to the, quote, out years, unquote, um, simply because we want those submarines flying an American flag, vice an Australian flag. I think that's a huge act of strategic malpractice, and somebody needs to to step in and and get this conversation moving in the right direction. Uh, because if Australia once again looks at the U.S. as a questionable ally, and the Brits are embarrassed on pos- on top of it, and at the end of the day. We just have those extra submarines with American vice Australian flags. I don't think we're playing a smart game if we do that. I, I agree 100. percent And uh, uh, Paul has asked, <coughs> excuse me, in the chat room, um, you know, what are, what are your goals to influence leaders of the, of the U.S. Navy? Well, not just the leaders of the U.S. Navy. We need everybody to write their congressmen. Say, look, this, this Australia, uh, Brit, UK thing is important to us. It's important to the world. You know, don't, don't think that by hoarding our assets, uh, we're going to somehow benefit from this. No, we, we need to show the Aussies and the Brits that we trust them and that we can, uh, that we're, we're all part of one team. And that's just, you know, that is the whole, remember the old thousand ship Navy thing? I mean, that, that is, there's no better way to build that kind of uh, thousand ship Navy by, than by helping your, your strongest allies uh, with something that they really need to have to, to live in the area where they live. And uh, I think that if the, if the message is, is anything to our Congress uh, people is, you know, tell, let's, Put enough money into the system where we can build another uh, and train people to, to build another a line or two for construction of these submarines. It, it can't be that we're we're being stymied by how badly we've mistreated our our uh, contractors uh, on these projects, and it's not really their fault. And I think that, as you mentioned several times over the course of the years, that that meeting where uh, Secretary of Defense Perry. Uh, told all the defense contractors that they needed to to to, uh, to uh, join each other or die. I thought that you know that was particularly inept management of national assets. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, we, you were talking about friendship with the Brits and the Australians. Um, what I think was Val Kilner's uh, greatest role in Tombstone when he played Doc Holliday. Uh, towards the end, you know, his character, Doc Holliday, is, is asked, you know, why are you doing this? And 
he was like, you know, the lead character whose name slips my mind. He said, he's my friend. And the other guy said, well, hell, I got lots of friends. And Doc Holliday's character says, well, I don't. Um, we don't have very many friends out there we can really count on. Uh, the Brits and the Australians, um, plus or minus a couple of optional wars in the last century, um, and us showing up late to the party a few times, we've always fought hand in glove with each other. Um, there's a lot of trust in there. And uh, we should make the extra effort to underline that relationship. We're a nation of over 330 million. We're the big kid here. The Brits have a population, I think it's 63 or 65 million. The Aussies have a population that's just a little bit more than the state of Florida, uh, over 20 million. Um, I think 20, 24 million, something like that. What's a few million souls between friends. But um, rightfully so, we should be able to give them the opportunity to punch above their weight and to solidify that relationship because uh, we don't have that many friends that have been that reliable for that long. And, and plus, we don't want to give the French a reason to tell the Australians you picked the wrong friend. Uh, we've, we can be an iffy friend uh, now and then. I would hate for us to, to have a um, another show like that, especially as the events in the Western Pacific demand people to have more confidence in us. Uh, Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines. Um, there's even been some, some nice comments uh, recently from Indonesia. Malaysia historically has a close relationship with Britain and Australia. Um, Singapore is uh, always a nice key. They're all looking at everything that we do, as are the Indians, but I'm just thinking Western Pack right now. And uh, if we flub this up simply because the submarine community uh, can't see outside of their, and I use the word intentionally, bubble, then um, anyway, I, I, I really have trouble believing that we would be so strategically short-sighted as to do that. But that's what I get for being an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well uh... – it is one of those great issues of how we run our foreign policy. Uh, you know, speaking of the Australians, just uh, if 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 anybody in the room has a chance, there's a there's a really good book about the Australian Navy uh, in the Mediterranean during World War during World War II. It's called the uh, Scrap Iron Flotilla by a guy named uh, Mike Carlton. I'm listening to the audiobook. He's the uh, uh, he, he's the the narrator of of his own book, but he does a great job, and uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, one of those, you know, I didn't, I wasn't aware that almost from the beginning, when when uh, the British got involved in 1939, that almost immediately thereafter, the Australians dispatched a bunch of uh, older scrap iron, as they call them, destroyers, to to help them out, and they spent a lot of time doing some serious work in the Mediterranean before they had to come home and, and fight the Japanese. So uh, good book. And it does remind me that, you know, that the Australians are, are, have a great naval history and they are, we should be supporting. 
has and and you know and we're also talking you, know, you just mentioned Japan. Uh, another thing I'm looking at is it. I, I love how everybody keeps telling us, well, Jan has given up. At, Japan has given up its pacifist thing. They've never been pacifists. They have a, 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 a defensive, <laughs> no. a defensive, a defensive system. You know, and now they're now they're getting into a situation where that defense includes a little more proactive defense, shall we say, um, that would allow them to to engage in. They, they don't want to fight on their turf any more than we want to fight on our turf. So uh, it is a uh, it's really important to see how Japan is doing, and it would be really nice if if we would return the favor to them uh, by buying some of those those wonderful flying uh, boats they have, which I can see being really useful out in the Western Pacific. Oh, yeah, don't get, don't get me started on those, those, float, those float planes. And the amazing thing is, is um, the TAC Air Mafia, who is always scared that somebody might get a little slice of their pie, I have always been... Um, a little distressed that they haven't been the strongest advocates of it because should we find ourselves in a spot of bother in the Western Pacific, uh, our aircraft will be coming in predominantly from the sea because very few of those air bases are going to be in any good shape after a few days. Um, They're going to run out of gas. They're going to have mechanical difficulties. They're going to have uh, damage. And they're going in the drink. The Pacific is really, really big. And you're not always going to be in range of a helicopter who might be assigned to do something else. This isn't World War II where we're going to have the fleet submarines spending all their time on the surface picking up aviators. It's going to be what did a lot of this during World War II. The uh, What was the name of the book? It was about cruisers in... Pacific and World War II, but a regular occurrence in the book was, um, and it was real, it wasn't fiction, the amount of time that their their float planes spent picking up aviators out of the drink because nobody else could do it. And actually, uh, quite a few of them lost their lives because they could never find their way back home to the ship or they crashed when landing. Uh, nothing's better than the seaplane. And the uh, the Japanese seaplane, the Chinese are building one, too, that's comparable. It's a turnkey operation. It actually uses the same engine as the C-130J, so there's a lot of commonality. When you look at all the military kit that Japan buys from the U.S., I think it also would do some good PR work if we bought some of those from the Japanese. We sure could use them um, on the East Coast and the West Coast here. I think I've mentioned before it would be, you know, have a split reserves and also USN um, squadrons if need be, you know, whatever it takes. You know, heck, give it to the Coast Guard if you want to. We can use those in wartime. I don't know. But when you look at special ops, when you look at uh, search and rescue, and when you also look at just being able to resupply, the Marine Corps is talking about wanting to, you know, oc- not occupy, but uh, to fortify every island out there. A lot of these don't have airfields. <laughs> or they or they don't have airfields that are uh useful for anything but a C one thirty. Um and some of these uh, the only way you can get in out is by a boat. That can take too long. 
especially if you have to resupply. You can do that with a seaplane. It was done all the time in World War II. There are a couple of rather obscure books that cover that topic. But uh, as Japan is doing what, what many of us have wanted to for a long time, they've announced they're going to be doubling their defense budget. And even to a greater extent than we are, they are a, uh, a maritime and aerospace power. So as they double their defense spending, which uh, with their GDP is going to be significant, most of that is going to go in the maritime and aerospace arena, which is exactly what we have a shortfall of in the Pacific. And if things ever get really bad in the Pacific, uh, Japan's going to be with us. You're right. They're not a pacifist nation. They just um, they were shamed by World War II. And uh, they got nuked a couple of times, and we also wrote their constitution for them. But they're coming around to a 21st century realization, and they're a great partnership. And a couple of, as a couple of authors have written, that uh, the war in the Pacific was a mistake. There was no reason why Japan should have ever gone to war with us and the other way around. Um, there's really no reason, especially with the – uh, a now democratic constitutional monarch, uh, constitutional monarchy that they have now. Um, there's no political movement. Uh, there's no resource starvation that we're going to get in the way with Japan. They're, they are as natural an ally of ours as uh, the Australians are. They're just not a uh, an Anglospheric nation. Um, they have their own very unique and highly functional culture. But you talk about friends. They're a great friend to have, uh, and I think doubling their defense budget is going to have a great impact for the rest of this decade as that comes online, and a lot of that is going to be spent either directly or indirectly into the U.S. defense industry. So coming back to my, you know, to if you want a friend, be a friend, I can see the requirement. A lot of people see the requirement. Again, we're going to mention it again. You know, Jack McCain on Twitter is always jumping in on this as is Blake Hertzinger. There's like this whole, I know you're there as well, there's this whole seaplane caucus over on Twitter that always beats that drum. Um, but uh, that would be something that we could do as a nod to the Japanese going that, you know, we're all going to support each other's industry as the the West, and I consider Japan part of, part of the West, um, as well stand together to, to hopefully create a system of deterrence that we don't actually have to go to war uh, west of Wake over the course of the next few decades. So that would be a nice thing to do to recognize uh, what was going to be coming out of Japan. That's a huge amount of money to go from 1% to 2% of GDP in the area of the world that we need that more than any other. Um, and they're not Japan. And they're never going to be an ally of ours, but they are very friendly to us. And they would, if need be, they would at least be an aggressive neutral. Vietnam's economy and Vietnam's GDP is also rising. And their relationship with uh, the Japanese and with America every year gets better and better and better. Maybe that's a 2030 conversation. But uh, there, there's, there's reason, if for not optimism, at least a few areas on the board in the Western Pacific that are trending green in our direction. 
um, as long as we don't screw it up like we were talking about with the Australians. Yeah, I, I'm laughing in the background because the uh, when I when I was talking about the Japanese and their their aggressive defense, it reminds me that that Mao called it uh, active defense, which, which by which he meant the offensive. So it's you, know, you can call it whatever you want. You've got to be you've got to have the ability to project power, and the the Japanese are looking uh, for that and toward that. And you know, uh, there's no reason we can't. I should apologize to people in the chat room. I can't, I can't answer anything because for some reason uh, I can't type anything in the chat room anymore. So, uh, at least for this show. Uh, but yeah, we need to, we need to, to get everybody out there on on board with the idea that you know we don't have to to fight. Uh, the Chinese, and, and I know a lot of countries out there are kind of, well, we don't really want to make them mad uh, kind of thing. I think Blake Herzinger just had a piece on that. Yeah, that's right. We don't we don't want to fight them either. But we also don't want them to to uh, uh, by default change the way the rules of the world work that have worked successfully to, and on their behalf, as a matter of fact, to uh, to become a, a thriving nation instead of the backwater uh, third world country they were for so long. Hey, um, thanks for reminding me that you're having trouble with the chat room. So while you were talking, I dove into it. And uh, old, old Southern Nap has a seaplane book, another book recommendation. Um, let's see, where did I put that? Here it is. It's called, he said, if you want to know how the, the, uh, VP community screwed up seaplanes. He recommended a book by uh, William F. Trimble called Attack from the Sea, the History of the U.S. Navy Seaplane Strike Force. Uh, and he has a link in the chat room for those that aren't there. And, and I'll try to put this up on, on Twitter if anybody's interested in that. So that is a book I have not read. Of course, it has uh, Will Dalsell, who's also been a guest on Midrats a couple of times. Uh, some of you all know him as Steel Jaw Scribe. Uh, he and I had some fun exchange about the Seamaster, the jet <laughs> seaplane that was supposed to be a, uh, a a strategic bomber. That was a hell of a plane when you look at the stats. But that would be uh, that's an interesting to see how the I, I've had some people tell me about the politics, um, and a lot of it was politics and money. It wasn't a requirement issue that we got rid of the seaplane. Um, it was, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm anxious to buy that book because it would be interesting. Man, it it uh, it don't come cheap though. It's not it's not a free book. So, and there's no Kindle edition that I can detect. But uh, you can get it used for eighteen ninety eight. There you go. But <laughs> <laughs> the used hardcover is cheaper than the paperback. Just saying. Always a plug. But uh, besides that, let's see, we haven't really surprisingly talked about Ukraine all that much as we're coming up on um, the one year. Uh, It almost seems it's got to be a calm before the storm. At the end of the year, there's a bunch of people talking about um, negotiation and what are people going to negotiate I see no indication that Ukraine has either the will or the desire to negotiate. And I think 
people need to look at this. It's not a civil war per se, but uh, during the Franco-Prussian War, I think I've mentioned this on Midrass before, um, General Sheridan was an observer with the Prussians. And um, when he was talking with the, the Prussian general staff, they were you know, asking him, why did your war go for so long? The The North had all the industry, greater population, greater trade, and but y'all lost so many people. The war went on for so long. You know what was what was wrong? And he said uh, we were fighting Americans, and there's something about a civil war. And the Russians and the Ukrainians have a long history. Uh, if you look at after the Bolshevik Revolution, when Ukraine almost became free, how blood soaked that conflict was. It didn't even get done until the end of the Polish-Russian War in 21-22, I think it was. Uh, they don't really like each other all that much. They never have. Uh, they, that that war is, isn't going anywhere. And uh, 2023 is going to be the year that probably the best thing that could happen to everybody is – Putin's illness gets worse because he's not leaving that job, but feet first. Um, and I don't think the Russian government has a very clean and clear political path to get a replacement leader. Probably the only way you can have a, a quick end of that war would be if somehow a Russian internal conflict was such they pulled all their forces home. But, uh, I don't know. I don't. I, well, it's just it's going to get uglier and uglier. Well, I saw that that uh, at least the president of Ukraine seemed to think that the Russians are mobilizing another five hundred thousand uh, draftees to uh, to join in the fun, and uh, you know that part of that is his, of course, his call for more uh, modern weapon systems from the West. But you know, the, the, I, Russia is not. As, you know, we were talking about the demographics. Russia doesn't have a growing population. It, it's, it is. Uh, I don't know where they're, where they, how long they can bleed themselves the way that looks like they're bleeding themselves. Yeah, the, um, Ukraine has societal collapse demographics as well. It's, it's two old, aging, sick nations uh, clawing each other's eyes out, but. Um, the Ukrainians have an existential fight on their hands. They're going to have different morale, uh, and uh, but the Russians have size, and um, they have a little better control over what little industry they have, while Ukraine is becoming more and more dependent on its Western suppliers, though I don't see that changing anytime soon especially if the rest of Europe joins with Finland and Germany will allow them to um, send in leopard tanks. Um, that that would be, to use an overused phrase, a game changer. There's been some nice commentary, which is understandable for those that have had to train foreign military uh, personnel on U.S. equipment, that uh, just because you can drive a T-72 doesn't mean you can drive a leopard too. And there's a, a training curve, there's a supply curve, there's a maintenance curve. However, 
this is a nation at war, and you can take shortcuts. And um, a crew that can operate at 70% at the front lines is better than a crew operating 0% in the back. Uh, so it might move a little faster than people think. Uh, the, uh, the aviators, a couple people are wondering what aircraft may come from the West to Ukraine. Uh, that also, I think, if this war is still going on by June, you're going to have to see that because they just don't have much left. Uh, and I think if you if they break the seal on sending Western tanks, now that we've run out of T-72s and M-55s to send their way, that um, once you break the seal on the tanks, then the aircraft will probably follow because it's really a political decision more than anything else. The Ukrainians will take them and they'll figure it out. Yeah, I, I'm also kind of looking at uh, Putin's efforts to pretend that the, his allies, such as they are, are, are poised to uh, come thundering in from uh, a variety of different directions to help the Russians out. I, I, I just don't see that happening because I don't think his allies are really all that gung-ho about joining in the, in the fight. Because they, I would think, among other things, they know they're next. Yeah, yeah. Belarusia, they had that almost revolution um, a while back. I think if the Ukrainians can kick the Russians out of Ukraine, that's going to destabilize Russia. And uh, if you think the Russians have a bad uh, continuity of government plan, if Putin goes sideways, how do you pronounce his name? Lushashenko up in Belarusia. Uh, he's been there since the Soviet Union fell. Uh, besides uh, when that uprising took place back in 2020, his son was seen walking around. But I get vibes of uh, Nikolai Ceausescu with Lukashenko and his family as well. That It's kind of run as a, uh, as a, a family operation. And when it ends, it's going to end really fast and really ugly. Um, uh, I know you, you and I remember very well the, the fall of communist Romania. I think it was less than a week. Uh, he was, he and his wife were up against a wall, and they took care of that problem rather efficiently. It was it was so sad, so so tra- so, so tragic. I think I think I probably laughed. <laughs> anyway, you know, it's the Ceausescu uh, or whatever his name was. I mean, what a creep. And so the world, sometimes the world just, what, what did they used to say in Texas? Some, some, some people just deserve killing. So yeah. some people know. just need a good killing. Yeah. An so. amazing thing is, and here we are, um, Romania is in NATO. Uh, the Romanians have been um, trying really hard to advance. They haven't been as successful as uh the Czechs or the Poles or the Hungarians, but they have lots of institutional issues they're working through. They were very supportive of us, um, especially in the last decade with, with overseas and uh, working some other issues in the background. Uh, that it shows you that things can really change rapidly with nations with relatively minimal bloodshed. And if uh, the, the bloodshed's limiting to having people like 
Ceausescu and his family put up against a wall uh, to, to liberate a nation of millions, uh, that, that's probably something that uh, history will, will smile upon, so to speak. Um, but hey, uh, I just looked at the clock. We're over an hour for our 13th anniversary show, and we told everybody um, uh, next week uh, will be a bye week. And I know tonight people will be watching football, but we have Brian McGrath coming up and also uh, Toshi Yoshihara coming on for the rest of the month. So uh, they won't just have to listen to, to you and me solve all the world's problems. I'm not sure we solve them, but we sure do have fun raising them. So, uh, yeah, let's. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to the look forward to another year, and uh, let's get this show on the road with uh, with Brian uh, two weeks from now, right? Yes, sir. All right. And cool. Thank you, Paul. Yep. Thanks, Paul and Southern Nap and the um, the other folks who came into the chat room. We appreciate. Uh, I know some of you who are listening have been with us uh, for the last 13 years since January of 2010, and we have some of our prior guests. I know are regular listeners as well. If we if we forgot to mention your name earlier, you can send me a nasty email, um, or you can send Mark a nasty email, or whatever works. But we appreciate everybody's support, ideas. And uh, until next time, hope you have a great Navy day, and here's to the 14th year. Cheers. Yeah.